Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. You can download the app in the App Store or on Google Play for under $4, and you get over 200 meditations from 30 expert teachers. It's such a small investment to sleep better, feel less anxious, and to be more focused and productive. And your one-time purchase of the app helps to keep our podcast going. Give it a try. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you with us. Today, I interview David Gillis, New York Times reporter for the Sunday Business section and author of Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out. David shares how he started meditating as a teenager, then spent his junior semester abroad in India, and is now what he calls a sporadic meditator, but completely convinced of the power of mindfulness to change us personally and at work. He believes that anyone can find value in even small amounts of meditation practice. In his Meditation for Real Life weekly column, he shares short tips from experts with titles like How to Be Mindful While Falling in Love, While Shoveling Snow, While on the Subway, When Your Flight is Delayed, to name just a few. Now, here's David. David Gellis, I'm so excited to have you on Untangle today. I've wanted you on our show for quite a long time now. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to start with a simple question, which is how did you originally get into meditation? Well, it goes back almost 20 years now. I was a college student and, you know, I had been kind of asking big questions about, you know, what on earth we were doing on this planet just as an inquisitive teenager but coming up with really unsatisfactory answers for several years and and was, you know, frustrated as an angsty teenager can be. And then one evening, uh, I noticed a book on Buddhism on my mother's bookshelf and I started reading and it spoke to me in a way that nothing else had. And it wasn't that all the answers to my questions were there, but it suggested that there was a, a path of inquiry that might help us develop some, you know, answers or, and if not some answers to big questions, at least some guidelines for how to, to live this life uh, in a productive and kind and compassionate way. And that was all really appealing to me. And so I literally opened up the yellow pages the next day, looked up meditation and went to my first uh, Zen sit at the Green Gulch Zen Center in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, near where I was living at the time. So that was my first taste. And then I practiced Zen for about a year and a half um, on my own and in Boston. And then I went to India and I spent the better part of a year in India um, studying three different traditions, Vipassana, Zen and Tibetan. Uh, and since then, it's, you know, it's been an on and off ongoing relationship with formal meditation practice. But the worldview has been very much central to my life. Before you got into your first sit, before you did your first Zen sit, you said you were kind of an angsty teenager. Did you have a lot of anxiety? Did you have trouble sleeping? I mean, was there something that was the impetus for that? Or was it just life, big life questions? I was getting in all sorts of trouble. I was a bad kid. I was doing all the things you can imagine a bad teenager doing. I was probably doing them. So, and then this was a pivot point for you. 
No, I had kind of straightened myself out a bit before I found meditation, but the the questions were still hanging around, you know. And and during my kind of wild teenage years, I was reading Krishnamurti, I was reading Ken Wilber, um, I was reading Avon Watts, and yet n- never did I make the jump from reading about these, you know, Western mystics, um, reading Ram Dass, you know, Be Here Now was like a breakthrough book for me. And as much as they talked about meditation, I never, that, that part never clicked that, oh, there's actually, there's a practice here. There's, there's work that you have to do to, to start to understand this in a more visceral way. Instead, I was like, you know, what pill do I take to, <laughs> to get me there? It's so interesting how, you know, curiosity can lead to the practice and that sort of difference between reading a lot of books and being intellectually excited by it and then starting a practice and really feeling it in your body. You said your first sit was like a half day sit at Green Gulch. Was it hard to sit for a half a day as your first go at it? You know, I don't remember the specifics. I mean, I I think as much as, I mean, it's always hard to sit, right? It's right. hard to sit now. <laughs> if you've ever been to Green Gulch, anyone who's been there, it's a pretty or, magical place. Yeah. And I, I think I was probably more just struck by the environment and, and the austerity of the, the formal hall. You know, that they take things pretty seriously there, you know, like crossing the threshold into a room. There's, there's a right way to do that. So my dominant memory, and this is almost 20 years ago, is more of just the, the, uh, kind of cultural novelty of it rather than the the difficulty or ease of the actual practice. Um, but I figured out that part pretty soon. You know, once you when, once you go back to the cushion a couple times in a week, uh, it, it becomes clear this is no easy feat. Yeah. Well, and did you always want to be a journalist? I'm trying to, like, so you have these two paths. And one is, you know, you get at a very young age pretty deeply entrenched in a meditation practice. But at the same time, did you always want to be a journalist? No, I was always a writer and probably thought about being a writer professionally. But again, somehow never made the connection that, oh, that probably means you're going to be a journalist. So I came to journalism relatively late in life, as in my mid to late 20s was when I really started getting serious about it, which is, which is you know, a little old for a traditional newspaper journalist in this country. A lot of journalists will, you know, be at their college paper and getting internships. And I just didn't do any of that. I kind of started freelancing when I was in my early to mid 20s and then went back to journalism school uh, when I was 26 or so. So did really doing this deep dive into meditation help clarify what you wanted to do in the world also? No. Okay. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish it had. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Right, uh, right. You know, so I, sometimes I still wonder what I want to do in the world. And <laughs> meditation does a lot of things, but it doesn't always do that for me. Okay. So what was it like to live in India for a year? And how did that really help you to commit to your practice? I mean, anyone who's been to India knows it's, um, it's a pretty powerful, powerful place for all sorts of reasons. But I took my junior year of college and just spent the entire time in India. And uh, I mean, the first three months were a pretty rigorous uh, study and meditation immersion in Bodh Gaya, India, which is the, the place where the Buddha himself was ostensibly enlightened. And then after that, I started traveling and went to places like Sikkim and up into Nepal and down south. And I mean, I was really kind of going from retreat to retreat. So, you know, it was a mix of kind of 
chasing out formal retreat experiences and also just kind of soaking up into It's amazing to me that you were inspired to do all of that as a college student. It's, it's kind of an incredible experience to have when so many of your peers were probably going to exchange programs in London or Madrid or Paris. Um, I think that's an incredibly cool thing to do. Uh, I had traveled relatively extensively in the other parts of the developing world, so-called, before that, um, specifically in Africa and Central America. So I had seen real poverty before, um, but the you know the immensity of India, both in terms of just the, the number of people and the diversity of the cultures and the richness of the history, uh, it, it was all pretty powerful. And and also spending so much time there, it's cliche, but things like you know supermarkets were pretty novel when I came back and seeing the you know, not only the the abundance and the diversity of choices, but also the the cleanliness and the order and the the relative sparsity uh, relative you know compared to the denseness of India. So yeah, I, listen, I, th- I I think about it probably almost every day, and it's been 15 or more years now since I was there. Have you thought about going back? Or? Uh, thought about it, but but haven't gotten back. Yeah. yeah, would very much like to. So several years go by, and you start, um, you go to journalism school, and then you become a journalist. When is it that you start getting intrigued by the power that meditation could have in the workplace? That came relatively recently. I mean, I was a reporter at the Financial Times in New York covering media, I think, at the time, um, you know, writing about technology and media. And I remember seeing this, you know, little wire story uh, just from the Associated Press, just very brief kind of perfunctory that said, you know, I think General Mills was teaching meditation in the office and hair on the back of my neck stood up because I just knew that this was my story. You know, I, I know this stuff viscerally and I'm a business reporter and I'm probably one of a very small number or maybe the only business reporter at a, at a big newspaper who has this kind of a history with meditation and mind, you know, not just any meditation. It's not, it's not as if everyone's doing TM in the workplace. It's basically kind of secular mindfulness, which is largely what I've been practicing and familiar with for almost 20 years now. So I, you know, got on a plane the next week or so and went out to General Mills and, and that became a big cover story for the Financial Times Weekend magazine. And uh, even as I was writing the magazine article, I I sort of knew that it would probably be a book. So it all happened pretty quickly the minute I I learned that there was this movement at some companies to to take this stuff seriously. So you had continued to meditate, but had you kept it sort of to yourself before that moment? You know, there have been periods when I, I have had very strong daily practice. There, I, I continue to go on retreats. Um, you know, I try to get there every year. I have two small children, so it's not as easy anymore. Um, but you know, day longs and half days, and I pop into centers when I can. Um, so it's it's been a it's been a journey, as it is with with a lot of people, and I can you know balance it against all the other demands of my life. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the the baseline where where I'm coming from, and then uh, when I started to see it showing up in the workplace, I think what was so intriguing to me is that the it, it wasn't as if there was like a secret army of Buddhists inside big companies. What was happening was that, you know, anyone from any walk of life was able to find value even in small amounts of this practice. And that 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 resonated with me because, again, I'm, I'm not a monk. I'm not a monastic. 
but I know experientially that even, you know, even a sporadic relationship with this practice can be really, really quite meaningful. Yeah, I love the way you put that because I think once you sort of get the value of even just taking a pause in your day, it doesn't have to be a long pause, but once you start learning even a simple practice, you have the potential to take that out into the world. It's not like, you know, we always say you're not trying to be an Olympic meditator. You don't have to win any competition, but it's really how you begin to understand how your behavior impacts yourself and other people in the world. And I think that's some of what's happening in businesses when they're learning how to meditate and they're learning how some of these, you know, somewhat simple practices, it can have a big benefit on how they communicate and how they, you know, even focus and maybe even feel more energized. But what are some of the benefits that you have seen from some of the companies that you've visited? And I know you cover a lot of this in your book, but to give people a little bit of a sense of that. Yeah. The nice thing about, you know, mindfulness practice is that it's, you know, it's showing up um, with as many varieties as there are companies out there. So everyone's doing it a little different and everyone's having different experiences. And, and I think that's appropriate. You know, different cultures are going to need um, different things. So, I mean, the, the most obvious baseline one is just reduce stress. You know, there's a reason mindfulness-based stress reduction has been so um, so popular over the last couple decades, and it's because it works. And listen, you just go into any workplace and you'll see the stress, you'll feel the stress. So in as much as, you know, just basic mindfulness practice can help bring down stress levels for employees, that's a, I mean, I think just a tremendous benefit. And it's probably the most common reason people are turning to this practice. Um, but then you see other things as well. You know, some people say that it makes them more focused. And there are certain professions that really demand that focus. And you know, concentration practice in meditation, just learning how to get a hold of your faculty for attention and actually choosing where we focus our attention rather than, you know, kind of being subject to monkey mind the whole time, that can be hugely, hugely beneficial as well. And then, you know, just a final couple would be, you know, some people say it makes them more creative, um, kind of eliminating that mental clutter and that constant rehashing of, uh, you know, planning and rumination, that that frees up some space for some more lucid thinking. And that's wonderful as well. What about um, for leadership? We've interviewed a few folks lately that are doing a lot of training for entrepreneurs or for philanthropists or leaders of nonprofits, and they're seeing a lot of benefits there as well. Have you seen that in particular with leaders of organizations? Yeah, you know, I even have a chapter in the book, and, and honestly, in retrospect, it's probably the one I'm least satisfied with because I think leadership is such an amorphous term. And I think it, every time I have tried to have a conversation about mindful leadership, and listen, I know that there are a lot of great people doing a lot of great work around this topic, and there's the Mindful Leader Summit, and there's all this stuff. I often get frustrated by the lack of specificity with these conversations in particular. So I think, listen, if we can talk about mindfulness um, making us better listeners, then that's something I, I can get behind and understand. If we can talk about mindfulness um, allowing us to be better at delivering bad news, for example, and being more compassionate because leaders sometimes have to make really tough decisions. I think that's, that's a conversation I'd love to engage in. I, I just get a little 
skittish when we talk about like mindful leadership as if that's one thing that we all understand. <laughs> because I think what we're talking about there is like a group of skill sets that could be useful to all sorts of people, but also, by the way, probably not just to leaders. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you're saying that. I like that it's a group of skills. And it's also, you know, it, it does apply to a lot of different categories. I mean, sometimes being a leader is knowing how to relate to other people well or to be in relationship with other people. And I think, you know, mindfulness helps you to be more thoughtful in relation. It's like what you're saying about um, mastering compassion or empathy or hearing what people are saying or maybe even listening to something with a fresh perspective. You know, we talk about in Buddhism, you talk about a beginner's mind, right? So like sort of being able to get into that um, head when it's important to do so. But I do like that you're saying it's a, it's a group of skills and it could apply in so many different situations. So were there any really kind of amazing sort of cases that you thought were best practices that you saw that you can share with us from the book? Yeah, I mean, and I've written about some of them even outside the book. Uh, you know, Aetna comes to mind early and often. You know, this is a situation where a big health insurer, um, the CEO, had a you know near-death experience, tried all sorts of conventional therapies, finally tried mindfulness. Uh, is you know you've heard this before, but it didn't make the pain go away, but it made him able to deal with it. He was able to experience the pain without it letting completely take over his life. And then he was so inspired by his own experience that he started rolling it out to his employees and really made it available to thousands now of employees, and they're offering it as a service. So, that, I mean, in a way, that most clearly illustrates kind of the full arc of the potential here. Um, so I love that example. Now, the truth is, you know, I, people ask me this, and like, I reported this book several years ago, so my full-time job is not kind of reporting on the meditation scene. So I'm sure that there are a lot of great new examples, and I try to keep tabs on them. Um, and yet, I mean, I'll say, I expected the corporate mindfulness industry to be a bigger, more kind of cohesive, organized business. You know, no one's to blame for that. And maybe it just speaks to the fact that this is still difficult material for a lot of people. I guess, you know, a couple of years on, I'm a little surprised it's not a bit more entrenched. Well, it's not because people aren't trying. I mean, there are a lot of uh, businesses that are trying to integrate mindfulness into wellness programs yeah. in corporations. Yeah. And so what do you think? I mean, is it is it still wanting more quantification? Is it that it's not a priority? Is it a trend that people think is not here to stay? And what's your thought on that? I think it's probably a little of all, all those things. I mean, quantification is, a, is just an absolute big one. But I'd say that, you know, the one that I hear most often is that, you know, a big company might have the appetite for it. Where do they go? Who's the Fortune 100 provider of this stuff? It still, you know, remains a pretty disparate group of small consultancies, um, none of whom have really been able to distinguish themselves. And I got to lay the blame to some extent there. And listen, it's not easy to be able to address a white collar audience with this material. So there are people trying, and yet. Uh, I think we still got a long way to go. Do you think that it's a cost issue or do you think that 
the programs need to be more kind of integrated into HR programs that are already up and running? I mean, do you see a solution that you think has potential? Every company is so different. And I've gone around and talked to, you know, dozens and you know, of different organizations over the last few years. And some people will say to me, listen, that, you know, an HR version of this is exactly what we need. Other people would say, if it came through the HR department, I wouldn't even look at it because we just don't have that, you know, that's not a good part of our culture here. Uh, you know, at some places it needs to be really employee-led, kind of ground up. So that's why, again, I say that there are so many different iterations and incarnations of this. Well, let's switch gears for a second. And what I love that you've covered mindful work, but that you've also, you have a column that you focus on, which is meditations for real life. And, and I think it's so important that people understand how to integrate these like mindful moments or, or meditations into, you know, you could be commuting, you can be, you know, putting your child to sleep. There's so many ways to integrate meditation into your daily life. And so I wanted to kind of talk about some of the topics that you've covered and just have you give us some of your bites of wisdom. Yeah. And, and listen, I should stress that these are real collaborative efforts. So I'm a, my byline is on it, but I work very closely with the, the kind of expert who we identify to, uh, you know, kind of tease out their wisdom. I'm just kind of a vehicle for, for their thoughts and their wisdom. This is my friend Lodra Rinsler, the founder of the Mindful Meditation Studios here in New York. And he talked about falling in love and he talked about the, you know, why do we call it falling? You know, when we talk about falling, it, it, it's almost a scary thing as if we have no control over it. And he encouraged us to actually just, you know, I, I forget exactly the words he used, but to be okay with the uncertainty and to try to tap into that, that sense of mystery. And if we are sort of letting go, then, then to do so in a light and sort of joyous way rather than, um, you know, feel any clinginess to it. What's your favorite of the ones that you've done so far? I personally like how to have a mindful new year. What's, <laughs> what's your favorite? That was one. Uh, I love the mindful kissing with Joanna Harper just because I think it's kind of racy. I mean, I think <laughs> she, she made it very sexy, which was fun to kind of skirt that line in, a, in an appropriate way. And then probably one of my favorites was the early one we did with Bill Duane, who's a, a guy at Google who helps run their mindfulness programs there. And he it was basically, I forget the exact title, but how to be mindful with social media or with Facebook. And it, it was, I hope I get it right. Um, but he said, you know, at, before you post anything, ask yourself three things. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And it was just a, a beautiful reminder. But that one, I, I believe, was our most popular. These are such important messages, right? Because they are really all saying, just be present with what you're doing now. You've put a lot of energy into really helping to spread this message of mindfulness. Do you think there are any risks that the mindfulness movement, if you will, is becoming kind of uh, commoditized, I guess people talk about it in that way, or you use the term sometimes mindfulness. Do you have concerns about this, or do you think the positive benefits are just way outweigh any kind of negative stuff that might yeah, be happening? They, they, 
definitely outweigh whatever mindfulness problems are out there. Listen, I've seen it. And even in the book, I mean, I have a chapter about mindfulness and the conclusion I draw pretty definitively is that I think it's something we all need to be aware of and careful of. But by and large, you know, listen, if people are being less stressed and happier and kinder to one another, I, I don't care if they're not you know, fully going down the, the noble path. That's okay. Like, that's a great start. I'll take it. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one last question, which is about when you're at the New York Times and, and it's a really frenetic day and the newsroom is just pouncing with crazy anxiety. Um, what, what practice do you employ in that moment? And how does meditation help you? I, listen, I try to have some perspective and, and really gratitude practice is a big part of my daily life. I, I just feel very, very, very fortunate, um, for all sorts of reasons, including to be able to have a, an exciting job at, you know, the world's best newspaper. So there is a certain amount of anxiety here for any number of reasons. You know, we're going through a big reorganization internally. My job can be stressful at times. You know, the president's tweeting about us all the time. And, and so that can all make it a little uh, chaotic. But the truth is, listen, I, I get to come here and try to do good work every day. In the scheme of problems, that's a, a good one to have. Well, I am so grateful that you were able to join us today. And thank you so much for your time and for your amazing book, Mindful Work. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to David. You can find his book, Mindful Work, at all major booksellers. And you can learn more about him on his website, davidgillis.com. Once again, if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio App in the App Store or on Google Play. We'll see you next week.